All right, it's good to see you in the house of the Lord this evening. I apologize for the cold reception. But, uh, I think Howard said it that way, so he'd be feel good tonight. <laughs> but he's he's even wearing his coat still, so you know, I think he's even a little chilly. Anyway, you know the thing thing. Uh, I don't know if it doesn't have an automatic setting, you know, so that when it's hot, it cools down in here, and when it's cold, it heats up. Seems like it has a cool and heat setting, and it was set on cool when I came in the night, so. And, you know, me, I didn't think of it before I came in, so sorry about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> you know, I could get this other unit put in, but he doesn't have the materials to make it heat anyway. So, uh, but I do think I'll contact him and say, go ahead and put it in, because we're going to want some air conditioning here very, for, for very long. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 12 through 27. It says, For as the body is one, hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. So he's talking about the human body and comparing the body of Christ to the human body. Your human body is one body, but has many parts. That's the way a church is. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether it be Jews or Gentiles, whether it be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. Those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. That there should be no schism or division in the body. You don't want your body fighting against itself. That's not good. Uh, Neither is it good for a church. Anyway, no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Whether one member suffer, all members suffer with it. One member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. So tonight I'm looking at membership in a Baptist church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your love, your mercies to us. Thank you for the truth of thy word. And we can study to show ourselves approved unto God. A workman needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I praise, look into the Word of God tonight. You encourage our hearts and challenge us and the importance of the church, the body of Christ, of which we are members here. And I pray that you would just give understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you know, we live in a, a day, an age, where there's a lack of commitment uh, in almost all areas of life. Um, and probably one of the areas we see it most vividly is that when it comes to churches. 
And of course, some of this is the fruits of the universal church teaching, which really uh, places or pushes local church authority to a secondary or minor issue. You know, and, and I'll get into that a little bit more. But but as tonight, as we consider this, and uh, I want, first of all, I want to look at the definition of a New Testament Baptist church and. And that church is described in the Bible as a local, visible assembly. You know, there's some metaphors, three metaphors that are used in Scripture to describe a church, and every one of them gives evidence to a local-only church. Um, Those metaphors are a body, a building, and a bride. And, of course, they're spoken of in different places of Scripture. We have here in this passage... uh, Twice he refers to the body, and, and particularly in verse 27, he says, Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. So, so you are, church of Corinth, this is who, to whom this is written, if you go back to chapter 1, it says to the church of God at Corinth, and, and Paul's telling him, look, you are the body of Christ, and your members in particular. So your members make up that body, you know, different, different members. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says that the church which is his body. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, it's referred to as a building. Ephesians 1, 20 and 22, uh, where the Bible says there, I don't think that's, it's not Ephesians 1, it's Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 20 to 22 where it says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, whom the building fitly and framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So he tells them that they are like a building of God, and they are a habitation of God uh, through the Spirit. Now, I don't know, you know, every building I've seen is local, it's visible. I've never seen an invisible one or universal, you know, that everybody uses the same old building. Um, or everybody owns the same old building. You know, that's, that's you'd say that's, that's kind of silly. Yeah, it is. But yet we think that's the way the church is. A lot of people do. I accept we. You know, that's the way a lot of the world thinks the church is. Uh, it's referred to also as a bride in Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth and said, I have espoused you, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And so he said, you, you, are, you are an espoused bride of Christ. And of course in Ephesians 5, that familiar passage talks about, he compares Christ and, 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 and uh, the relationship between Christ and the church, between a husband and a wife, where it says, Wives, uh, verse 22, Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. You know, and notice it says, Husbands or wives, submit yourself to your own husbands, and husbands, you're to love your own wife. And, you know, there's no such thing as a universal bride. I don't think any of you guys want your wife to be the universal bride or the invisible one. You know, how would you like to be married to the invisible bride? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I don't think so. You know, that's, that's just strange. Uh, but anyway, so every New Testament church has one head. 
and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might say, well, how can that be if it's local, every local church? Well, understand, Christ is omnipresent. He's not, he's not local. And, and He's not visible with the, with the eye. Uh, we see Him through His Word. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He has all power. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. So He knows everything that's going on in every church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I clarify, every church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's lots of churches He has no interest in because they're not churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they call themselves churches. So, you know, it's interesting. The Lord addresses the seven churches in Asia in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, and each had specific problems. And he addressed each of those specific problems to each church. And he's the head of every one of those churches. And he knew what was going on in every one of those churches, although they were all in different locations. And, and so he is the head of every church. He knows his churches. And, and through his faithful pastors, the angels, that's what's called in Revelation 2 and 3, that simply means messengers, you know, those letters were sent to the churches and they're addressed to the pastors. So, of course, that also demonstrates the responsibility and authority of a pastor. You know, um, and so a church is an assembly of the Lord's people who have coveted together for worship, evangelism, the keeping of the ordinances. Um, you know, it is an assembly. Acts 7.38 says, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness. With the angel spake to him in Mount Sinai, and with her fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. And so there the word is describing Israel in the wilderness. You know, they were an assembly. They were in one location. They were a visible assembly. They were never called a church once they get into the land. Because they weren't in one location anymore. They went all to their different places. You know, they had, they had different, different uh, locations for every tribe once they got into the land. But while they were in the land, they all camped together in one assembly, all around the tabernacle. That was the center. And so, you know, the, again, the word church here means assembly, it, 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 as it does in every case. Uh, Acts 8.1, Saul was consenting unto his death. At that time, there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. So it's identifies a certain church or assembly. They were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Uh, this word is also used to describe other gatherings in the New Testament, but it's translated assembly instead of churches. For example, in Acts 19.39, if you inquire anything concerning other matters, it should be determined in a lawful assembly. This was the uproar at Ephesus, remember, and they... they, they, uh, they uh, 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 from the um, silversmiths. And then again in verse 41, he says, And when he had thus spoken, he dismissed the assembly. So there was a gathering, assembling together of people. It was, a, it was local in one place, and it was a visible, though it's not called a church because it's not one of the Lord's assemblies. And so it's translated by the translators as a, an assembly. So this is really a definition of a New Testament church. It is a local assembly of baptized, organized uh, believers in a local place, uh, a visible gathering. Uh, the New Testament Baptist church as uh, authority is local. We go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. 
in verse 18 and 19, Matthew 16, 18 and 19, which says, I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, when you compare this scripture, you know, some, here's the interesting thing. Those, the universal church people say that the keys to the kingdom of heaven were given to Peter. Because Jesus is responding to Peter's um, testimony of who he is. And then Jesus says upon this testimony that I am the Christ, I will build my church. And then he says, I will give unto thee. And see, they think that that's Peter. But if you compare that with other verses of Scripture, you, you have to come to the conclusion that he's talking to the church. There was already a church in existence, those 12 that he had gathered around him. Peter did not have the authority, no pastor has the authority, to, to exercise church discipline without the vote of a church. It's the church that has authority. Again, if you go to Matthew chapter 18, you'll see that very clearly. But anyway, so the authority here is given to the church. He said, I give unto thee, that is the church, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's the church that has the authority of binding and loosing of membership or receiving and removing of membership in the churches, uh, uh, in the church. So it's the church that has that authority. And so the church was given that authority to accept or discipline members. You know, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 2 through 7. And, and of course, there was an issue there. I'll start at verse 1. It says, Reported commonly there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. So there's really some incest here. And he says in verse 2, And ye are puffed up, have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you, for I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye, notice he's saying, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with you, with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good, Know ye not the little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, even as ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So he's writing to the church at Corinth. You know, Paul was an apostle. He had authority that I do not have. You know, he had authority as an apostle. Uh, you know, he, he, he was given special authority, sign gifts, revelation, those things which... I don't have, sorry, I can't heal you of your sickness, lay hands on you and your, make your car work better or whatever. You know, if you want to do that, you guess you have to go to one of these other. Anyway, no. Anyway, you know, he had special authority. But he tells the church, look, he tells them what they need to do. He's telling them, you need to exercise your God-given authority. Do it. I'm not, I'm not there. I don't need to be there. It's not dependent upon me. I'm not a member of your church. You need to do it. This is the authority that God has given you as a church to exercise this authority. 1 Timothy 3.15 tells us that the church is the pillar and ground 
of the truth. The word uh, pillar has the idea of a support. The word ground has the idea of anchor or something that's firm or foundational. And so the you know the you know we see a uh, uh, a clear example of what happens when the church is not your foundation. You know, and uh, and this resulted in false teaching in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 15, there were some left the church at Jerusalem, went down to the church at Antioch and taught they had to be circumcised to be saved. And the church at Jerusalem concluded, look, they went from us, but we didn't send them. We didn't send them. They weren't authorized. They weren't sent by us. And so, church authority is local. It's local. It's in a local church. The church, of course, was started by Christ in the Gospels. And again, this is, this is you know, all uh, New Testament churches in the first 300 years believed these things. There was no state churches, no denominations. Uh, Acts chapter 1, we see the example of this in Acts chapter 1, and, or evidence of this, you might say. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14 through verse 22, it says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with women, Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Those days stood up in the midst of his disciples, of the disciples, and said, The number of the names together were about 120. So they had a membership of 120. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. He was numbered with us, had attained part of this ministry, now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. Falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch that the field is called in their proper tongue, Alkadami, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, let no man dwell therein, let his bishopric another take. And it refers to a pastor's uh, position. Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied with us, all the time that the Lord Jesus went out in and out among us, beginning, and here's the important thing, beginning from the baptism of John until the same day that he was ordained, that one be ordained to be witness with us of his resurrection. And so, uh, you know, so we see here, these are, these are assembled together. There's 120. They're having a business meeting, a church business meeting. They're conducting business. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he says that we need one from the beginning, from the baptism of John. You know, John baptized some of the disciples of the Lord Jesus, and they were never rebaptized. Jesus accepted John's baptism because it was from heaven. It was from heaven. Do you know baptism is a New Testament doctrine? It's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. Under the law, there's no such thing as baptism. There's washing of hands. That's referred to as baptism of hands, but it's referred to washing of hands. So John, you know, the materials for the first church, some of them were repaired by John the Baptist. Peter and Andrew, James and John were all baptized by John. And when John, you know, when, when, when John then pointed out to Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, they followed Jesus. They left John and followed Jesus. Now, the church was empowered at Pentecost, but it was not born at Pentecost. It was already in existence. Uh, 
you know, they had a Lord's Supper. They were doing baptisms. They were baptizing new converts. You know, there's there's now 120. And we know this is a membership role because it's added to. Chapter 2 and verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them. In other words, added to the 120, about 3,000 souls. So they were added to. You don't add to something that's not in existence. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, the church was empowered at Pentecost. You know, they already had a pastor. Peter stands up in the midst. This is in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. He stands up in the midst. What right does he have? Well, do you remember what happened in John 21? Jesus came to Peter and says, Lovest thou me more than these? Peter said, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. And what did he say? Feed my sheep. The word feed there is to shepherd, where we get our word pastor. That's the same, same idea, same meaning. Feed my sheep. Peter will later write in 1 Peter chapter 5, Feed the flock of God. To the elders which are among you, feed the flock of God. Feed the flock of God. So Peter already had a charge. You know, he had, you know, they already had a pastor change, an appointed pastor by the Lord himself, appointed by the Lord himself, and that was Peter. So here they have a business meeting where they formally vote out and vote in a replacement for Judas, you might say, Mattathias. And, of course, then in chapter 2, there are added to them by baptism. Added to them. So, so this is a New Testament church. Uh, second thing I want to notice tonight is faithful believers are set in a New Testament church or body of Christ. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And... Uh, Verse 12-14, it says, For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For of one Spirit, that is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Then verse 18, But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. Now, we know that the Spirit of God is God. So what's it mean that he, by one Spirit, are we all baptized into one body? Well, in verse fourteen it says, verse 18 it says, that Now hath God set the members in the body, every one of them in the body as it hath pleased him. The word set uh, is also used in verse 28. The word set means to dispose, to set within his own authority. Now, the word dispose means to incline, to arrange, to decide. So you could read verse 13 this way, For by one spirit are we all disposed, or set, or inclined, or arranged to be baptized into one body. That's what really verse 18 means. But now hath God set the body, the members, every one of them in the body as it has pleased him. Who does the setting? Who, who, who is doing the deciding? Who is doing the arranging? Well, verse 18 says, 
but God. Now hath God set the members. Again, verse 28. And God has set some in the church. And he's talking about the leadership in this verse and some of the other gifts there. Uh, it's God that chose or decided or set Paul aside as an apostle. And Peter and James and John and all those, it's God that set those aside. Um, so it's God who sets. So we are joined or set in a body of Christ, and of course in a church, by baptism. And it's the Spirit that decides or directs us to join the New Testament church. You know, baptism, as I mentioned, is a New Testament teaching, sets, it sets one in the church. Again, we see this in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. It says, Then they gladly received his word the same day they were, uh, were baptized, and there were added unto them 3,000 souls. Uh, and again, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Uh, whether we Jew or Gentile, bond or free. So, you know, we enter the kingdom of God or the family of God through salvation. John chapter 3, verse 5. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You know, Colossians uh, chapter 1 and verses 12 and 14. Colossians 1, 12 and 14 says this, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us part- meet to be partakers, that is, the word meet means fit, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So we're, we're translated, you know, through salvation, through the redemption of, through, of Christ's precious blood, we are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, in the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Christ, or the kingdom of God. It's all, all the same kingdom. So we enter the kingdom of God, or the family of God, through salvation, uh, by repentance and faith in Christ, but we become a member of one of the Lord's churches through baptism. You know, it is possible for a person to be saved. It is possible for a person to be saved and not a member of the Lord's church. But it is not possible for a person to be saved and not a member of the Lord's church and be considered a faithful child of God. And the pattern that we see in the New Testament and what we ought to consider as we consider people's conditions before God is, the pattern in the New Testament is if a person gets saved, you know what they did? They joined the New Testament church. They joined the New Testament church. That's the pattern. And, you know, Bobby Mitchell made the statement one time and I you know, never heard it say it that way, but I thought about it for a while and I thought, yeah, I agree with that. You know, if a person is not willing to join this New Testament church, I consider them a lost person. Because that's what we see in the Scriptures. And it's the Spirit. We can see here from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, or 12, that it's the Spirit of God that decides or directs. You know, and if we are saved, we have the Spirit of God takes up residence. He dwells in us, and, and, and we're to yield to Him. And if we won't yield to him, then we're in disobedience. If it's continual disobedience, then it makes you question whether there is salvation, whether there is a spirit of God there. 
So, so we become a member of the Lord's churches through baptism. Uh, you know, and again, we see examples of this in 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 the scriptures. In uh, Acts chapter eight, verses twelve through seventeen, you know, Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ unto them, and and it, and it says in verse. Uh, uh, 12, but when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And then, of course, they sent uh, Peter and John down from the church of Jerusalem to organize the church, you might say. And, of course, they went down, and, and as yet they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Philip had done miracles and so on, but... It says in verse 14, Now when the apostles which were Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Now you might say, why is that so? Well, I believe that the... One of the things... Consider who the Samaritans are. To the Jews, they were outcasts. They would have nothing to do with them. They were unclean. They were just about like the Gentiles, if not worse. So the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And, and if you understand a little bit of the fact that, or the idea of or how difficult it was for even the apostles to go to the Gentiles. Peter had to have a vision from God himself. Showing him that he needed to go to the Gentiles. He needed. He 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 was not to consider any man unclean or unworthy of receiving the gospel. We see this in Acts chapter ten. Well, that's how they looked at the Samaritans. So what you have here is a sign gift to Jews, and they didn't receive the Spirit of God until Peter and John went down. Now you might say, "Well, wasn't Philip a Jew?" Yes, he was, but that's just one witness. What's it required in Scripture for an effective witness? By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. So there would be no argument from Jerusalem if Peter and John, who were the pastors at Jerusalem, who were pastors at Jerusalem, Peter being the lead pastor, went down to Samaria and prayed, and they received the Spirit of God, confirming the fact that these people had truly been converted. And, of course, they organized a church there. And, of course, later on, uh, you know, uh, Peter goes to to uh, uh, Cornelius, and of course there were Jewish brethren who went with him and witnessed to the fact that the Spirit of God came upon them. Uh, so, so this is what you see here, and this is what the pattern throughout Scripture. Uh, third thing we see is New Testament church. The New Testament church is the authority of Christ. If you go back to First Corinthians chapter. 1, verses 24 and 25. It says, For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that which parts which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but the members should have the same care one for another. Now that word schism means a rent or a division. So the church, the New Testament church, has authority to care one for another. You know, we're to exercise care over one another in the church. We don't have to call for you know, some elder or bishop outside the church or some denominational leader or, 
or, or you know, or a college leader or whatever. No, the church is supposed to do that itself. Um, you know, just like in a family, parents have authority over their own children. God-given authority. And God has given churches to exercise authority or oversight over the members. And that's what we read about in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, when the Lord said, I give unto thee, that is to the church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So, of course, this leadership, uh, the leadership in this oversight is given in particular to the pastors. Peter writes about that in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 1 through 3. And uh, again, this is not, and Peter brings this out, this is not lordship authority, but it is leadership. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, The elders which are among you I exhort, whom also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God. That's really the idea of pastoring there, feeding the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, and that word is really translated, could be translated overseer or bishop. Uh, one who takes the, the over, oversight or leadership responsibilities, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy ludicrous sake, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. So the you know, pastors are to take the oversight or the leadership. You know, Jesus told Peter in John 21 to feed my sheep, to shepherd my sheep, to lead them. That means to lead them, to correct them, to discipline them when needed and to care one for another, like a family. You know, somebody to come alongside and help. And sometimes, you know, even in families, you have to discipline children or members. And so, the New Testament authority, or New Testament church, is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I mentioned earlier, it is a pillar and ground of the truth. A pillar supports or holds up the truth. The ground is something, an anchor of truth, or speaks of it being firmly established. And its true churches have been the foundational source of truth throughout ages. You know, it was the faithful churches that determined the authority of Scripture. In other words, what should be in this Bible and what should not. You understand that, you know, this Bible didn't come put together like this. You know, there were books written in different places. And it was the churches to decide which books of the Bible should be what they call canonical or part of the scriptures. You know, there were other writings that were rejected. For example, the Apocrypha, which the Catholic Church accepted as authoritative and put it in their Bible. There's writings of, you know, I found a book some years ago of uh, the epistles of Barnabas. You know, I don't know if Barnabas wrote them or not. I picked it up, but I never did read it. I don't even think I kept it. I don't know if I still have it in my poison pile or not. But, you know, my poison pile contains my new international version and my new world translation and the living Bible. You know, that's my poison pile. I keep it in the, in the uh, file cabinet where people don't see it, so they don't think I use them. But uh, anyway, you know, I, you know I, I only pull it out for purposes like this. But, but you know, there, there were other books that were written, letters that were written to church. In fact, Paul makes reference to the fact that this is the third time I am come to you. So evidently there was another letter he wrote to Corinth. 
which the churches did not consider part of the scriptures. And they rejected it from being placed in the canon of the Bible. See, the churches did that. And, and up until 300 A.D., there was no universal or state church authority. Every church was local and governed by its own people and pastor. That's what a church is. And New Testament churches have, will be given by God, this authority. Of course, many have gone the fundamental, fundamentalist route. And this is where things start coming apart or unraveled from local church authority. Um, you know, classic, when you know, consider classic fundamentalist philosophy, you know, I have a book when I was going to Bible school years ago I thought was great. I don't think that way anymore. But anyway, it's called A History of Fundamentalism in America. And then there's a follow-up to this called The Fight for Fundamentalism in America. Anyway, I wrote, read both of these with great interest back in those days. But anyway, as, but now as I consider this and have come to an understanding of the church from a scriptural standpoint, there's a couple of things here I want to read from this book. It's written by George W. Dollar, who was a, who was a fundamentalist. And this is what he says about fundamentalism. He says, quote, this is on page three, quote, it challenges us to analyze its century of existence. That's 100 years. So fundamentalism has only existed for 100 years, is what he's saying. This book was written, first print was 1973. So you're talking 100 years, 1873, when it started. The author admits, goes on, the author admits to a continuing fascination with this move, movement, one which, with which he is identified by convictions as abiding as a life itself. He is found in the fathers and the faith of fundamentalism, an example of unmatched fidelity to all that the Bible teaches and a willingness to pay dearly for that loyalty. Unquote. So he, he says there that it's a century of existence. Is that all along where Christianity has been around? True Christianity? On, in chapter 7, he has a chapter called the Prima Donnas of Fundamentalism. You know, Prima Donna means first, first principles. Uh, and, and, he, and he says this, it's page 105, four men were sensations, four men were sensations in this period among fundamentalists, foes, friends and foes loved or attacked them, and today they are remembered with deepest religious nostalgia. Their great moments are remembered with keenest emotions and deepest respect. Their feats of manhood in the midst of titanic struggles still remain beacons of light, beacons, lights of testimony. They differ greatly among themselves, but each in his amazing array of gifts took on the whole conspiracy of modernism, apostasy, liberalism, and evolution peddlers on faculties and were writers of finest scholastic background and acumen. These four warriors were in the forefront of the fight for fundamentalism, by the way, which is only a century old. Fundamentalism, giants in the proclamation of the gospel of grace, they were, 
Thomas Todd Hunter Shields of Toronto, Canada, William Bell Riley of Minneapolis, Minnesota, John Roach Stratton of New York City, and John Frank Norris of Fort Worth, Texas. Um, this generation knows little of the Herculean battles these men endured while pastoring large and growing churches. Their example to young men was overwhelming, and most fundamentalists on the scene today are directly or indirectly indebted to their loyal stand, their magnificent defense of the faith. And notice this. When schools, seminaries, and denominations came under the spell of Satan in the acceptance of the false doctrine, our study demands that we not only notice them, but plot their place in the movement called fundamentalism. So, we include a few things here. Fundamentalism is a movement of men. It's also a reaction. It's a reaction to apostasy, liberalism, modernism, and evolution peddlers. In... Schools, seminaries, and denominations. So my question is, are these Bible believers Baptist Bible believers? Were Baptists ever promotion, promoters of denominations? You know, did we look, are we supposed to look to schools for authority or seminaries? You know, I've read this book through, like I said. One of the prima donnas was a guy by the name of William B. Riley. He preached against the compromise in the Northern Baptist Convention, but never left it. And I thought to myself, even when I was reading it, that, that's strange. He never left it. And the interesting thing is, Mr. Ecumenical himself preached his funeral. You know who Mr. Ecumenical himself is, or was? Billy Graham. Mr. Compromise. So these men were considered giants in the faith, but obviously they were men with flaws, and all men have flaws. And this is the problem with denominations, conventions, schools, is when where men become followers of men without oversight from God's God-given authority. A church. You know, one of the things that fundamentalism does is it, it divides doctrines into essentials and non-essentials. Baptism becomes a non-essential because a lot of these fundamentalist guys came out of places like Princeton, Auburn University. You know, you would say today, I didn't know Auburn University was a Christian school. It isn't now, but it was then. Brown, some of these others. Uh, anyway, uh, so you know they, they divide the, the doctrines into essentials and non-essentials, and of course the local church is secondary. It's to the universal invisible church theory. You know, the, the, the basic fundamentalist philosophy is, in a fundamentalist church, is you're current, encouraged to go off to Bible college even if you sense no calling in your life to ministry, to see what the Lord wants you to do with your life. And so you're trained for a ministry, and then you maybe feel pressured to do something along those lines, which some have. I know some that have. And, and uh, Anyway, so if you're not a pastor or a missionary, then you can become a Christian school teacher. But, you know, and, and, and your counselors are become your college teachers. After all, they have more experience in teaching than the average pastor. 
However, they do not have more experience in dealing with real life situations than the average pastor. Because college life is a bubble. It's not the real world. It's not the real world. It's a controlled environment for learning. You know, it can be helpful, but it's not real life. So, you know, you go to college, you decide, and there you decide what path you want to pursue, and your pastor is expected to approve. And so if you've been called to a pastor, to be a pastor, you look for a church, or for a missionary, you go for a mission field, missionary, you, want, you look for a mission field, and, you know, look for a mission board to oversee your missionary endeavors, and off you go. And your, your home church really doesn't have a whole lot to say about it. Oh, they may endorse you. In fact, many churches encourage you in these things to do these kind of things. But who's pushed into the background or who is, whose oversight is now considered secondary? It's the church and the pastor that pastored you most of your life. You see, no... Authority was given to the New Testament, a New Testament local church. That is really the only church just spoken of in the scriptures. Unless you want to go to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, and then there's the harlot church. And that is the Roman Catholic Church and all its children, which are Protestants. So these are the things that we need to understand concerning the ministry of the church. And... Uh, You know, we need to adhere to them and understand the authority and the responsibility we have you know, to each other in the church. We're all members of one body in the church. 